Oh, hey, good evening. This is Kevin Hoover of the Mad River Union newspaper, and uh, you're listening to Thursday Night Talk. I'll be your host tonight. Uh, first, before we get on to our guests, uh, a little bit of an update. A few weeks ago, we had a Thursday Night Talk about Resolution Care. It's an initiative by Dr. Michael Fratkin uh, to provide uh, compassionate end-of-life services for folks who are, you know, um, looking towards uh, their end days, uh, for want of a more delicate way to put it. Uh, he succeeded. Uh, today, we found out that uh, through Indiegogo, a fundraising campaign, Michael has managed to raise $130,000 to properly staff Resolution Care. So you can, congratulations to Michael and everyone who uh, assisted with that effort. And it's uh, going to make a big difference for a lot of people uh, in our area. And uh, you can find out more about that at Resolution Care on their website and Facebook page and stuff. So... Hooray. Well, welcome to Thursday Night Talk. Uh, Our topic tonight is a global organization dedicated to cultivating independent media around the world. It has a major office in Arcata, of all places, and that's the former PC Saki car dealership on 7th Street. It's internews. You've probably driven by that place a hundred thousand times and wondered, well, what do they do in there? Uh, well, we're going to find out. Um, what does internews actually do, like every day in their offices, out in the field, and long term, what is internews trying to accomplish? Here tonight and on the phone are some folks from internews who are going to help us better stand, understand its mission and its projects. On the phone is Marjorie Roos. She's senior vice president of programs, uh, and she is uh, she's in their Washington, D.C. headquarters. That's where she works. Marjorie, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Marjorie. Also uh, here with us in the studio is Erica Feldkamp. She's Vice President for Administration in the Arcata office. Welcome to Thursday Night Talk, Erica. Thanks, Kevin. And also with us is Henry Paul. He's, uh, well, it says you're Chief of Part. Is Chief that of Party. Party. Okay. It's a new term I hadn't heard. Chief of Party, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and you were born in Cameroon. And uh, you have done a lot to cultivate media in what we would call the developing world. We're going to get to that specifically. Um, I guess we'll start. Oh, and of course, as always, we want your questions. Uh, 826-4805. That's 707-826-4805 for the folks at Internews. But first, we're going to find out what Internews is. And we'll ask uh, Marjorie Roos. Marjorie, what is Internews? And what's its mission? (laughs) And what does it do? Great. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Internews is an international nonprofit uh, dedicated to empowering local media and growing what we like to call healthy information ecologies around the world. And that's how how information flows in a community. And over the past 30-plus years, we've worked with local media. Um, We consider ourselves what we call platform neutral. We work with the media that reaches the people who need information the most. So that goes from online to mobile, television, radio, citizen and professional journalism, uh, and journalists rather. And we've done this in more than 90 countries, ranging from Chad to Burma to Ukraine. Uh, And the programs are as diverse as the countries in which we work, but they're all rooted in a belief that if people have access to quality, locally produced, locally relevant information, they're able to improve their lives and enrich their communities. So you're working on the uh, premise that information is power, and if people, every regular, everyday people have it, they're more empowered to make informed decisions. Absolutely. Kind of, kind of like the mission of public radio, I would say, right. as well. Uh, and and that, that if people, people have information, but also I think an important part of the equation for us is that people have voice. So the ability for people to receive information through media, but also participate in media and the creation of media in media through call-in shows and talk shows like this one, uh, for it to be to be a platform for a conversation as well, as opposed to a one-way source of information. I think that that equation shifted certainly here at home and globally um, quite a while ago uh, with social media, with, with media becoming more of a conversation and dialogue within a community. Now, how do you, how does Internews select uh, the areas uh, that need focus, that need assistance in uh, developing their media? Well, we, we, we look at a triangulation of, of three things. The first is where is their need? Uh, and, and the second is, do we have something to offer that particular community that isn't already there or they have locally or someone else is doing? And then the third is, can we find a funding source willing to support that type of work. We are um, a 
a donor-funded organization. Um, so we unfortunately are not, we do not have the ability to do everything we would like to do, but when we can triangulate those three things, that's where we will will pick uh, to work. I imagine that there are times when you can't meet all of those three criteria, uh, where there might be a crying need, but uh, perhaps uh, local conditions aren't, uh, you can't get in there or, you know, you don't have the resources for it. It, it does happen. Uh, it, it's frustrating when the resources are the piece you can't put together. If, if we find a need, but there's, there's somebody there who can meet it, that's fantastic. The mission is still being met. Uh, but we're, you know, we, we work hard to, to try to triangulate that, especially the more acute the need is, um, the more we will, we will make effort to, to find ways to meet it. Now, maybe this isn't true, but uh, it's my assumption that uh, places that need uh, some sort of media infrastructure and information dissemination are exactly, in some cases possibly, the sorts of places that don't want that sort of thing. Uh, is that the case? I mean, do you, is it? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, some, sometimes it's, uh, we, we do work in places where freedom of expression and freedom of press um, may not be as highly valued as others. We also work in places where there's uh, there's gaps in the infrastructure in places like Afghanistan where we've helped build radio stations, places where we've done sort of the bricks and mortar work of building community radios uh, so that there's at least one radio station in each province of Afghanistan. We've done this in places like South Sudan and Chad, so it's not always... Um, an unwelcoming environment, but sometimes it's it's an environment where there there's just a gap in infrastructure as well and in talent. So you're working with universities so that there are places that can prepare the next generation of journalists or, or physically building stations or working in places where the legal and regulatory environment needs needs help where they're drafting new laws and they need examples of, of best practices from other countries in their region or from other places in the world so it really it really is uh, a mix of places and uh, in terms of the mix as well I mean uh, I, I take it that you're able to train journalists in how to comport themselves ethically and, and do basic news gathering and dissemination but do you also work on uh, the physical facilities as well like building the radio station putting the printing press in or you know that sort of thing we'll, we'll do that where there's where there's a real gap and there aren't local resources so when some of the um, I I was referring to places like Chad or South Sudan or Afghanistan. In most places, though, there's already existing media, or even in some cases, um, civic groups that that are are looking to communicate with their constituencies, and we'll work with them. Uh, you know, we we do do the bricks and mortar work. Sometimes, uh, if it's existing outfit, outlets, it may be helping them with financial viability uh, or looking at their their funding model and their their sustainability which is you know to be honest something everybody's looking at in this country as well and and it's a learning process that we're we in media are all doing together uh you know in in developed and developing countries and sometimes the developing countries are are the media partners we work with are much more innovative and bigger risk takers on this because they haven't had a long history of you know good support they they've always had to be scrappy and and figure out ways to survive it's my impression that uh you know americans are not always extremely well received just by virtue of being americans in certain places and then of course that big torture report that came out today when something like that comes out does is this something that you have to factor in uh to when you're in uh some of these remote places uh you know the the kind of impression that people have correct or otherwise uh, about americans well i think uh one one thing that uh that we that we do make an effort to do is and it's it's because it aligns with our mission and that is to be as as local as possible in terms of of who we work with and who we are so Many of the places where we work, actually, there, there aren't any American staff members. Um, we have people like Henri Paul, who is an African, um, leading our, our effort in, in the DRC. Uh, and, and that is the situation in many countries. And we do work as locally as possible once we get into a country. So we'll, we'll tend many times to work with the community radio station as opposed to the big national broadcaster. Uh, so we, we, we're very much... 
a part of the community. Um, that said, where where you do have a larger international footprint, things like a report coming out that can trigger violence. You know, there's there are always you know U.S. embassy and State Department puts out warnings, and and we track those very carefully and pay attention to them. As as do do just about any um, Americans or other internationals living abroad and you're, working abroad. Yeah, I just wanted to remind uh, listeners, you're listening to Thursday Night Talk. We're talking about Internews tonight, a global organization dedicated to cultivating independent media throughout the world. And uh, we're on the line with uh, Senior Vice President of Programs, Marjorie Roos. We'll get to our other guests here in the studio momentarily. I just have a few more questions for Marjorie. And, of course, we always want your phone calls, 707-826-4805. Marjorie, uh, is there any type of media that you uh, find most efficient uh, uh, for cultivating, uh, or do, is it mostly radio, or do you adapt to whatever the local situation is or what they're used to? Um, you know, uh, what, what do you do? Print? I know you do radio. Uh, what what forms of media do you try to to assist? But everything you just named, <laughs> to be honest, it, it really is a mix, and we'll look at what what is going to reach um, the people who who need it the most. Uh, that said, there are very few places that we work where the media isn't convergent. And by that, I mean there's a radio program, there's a radio station, but they have a website. And they're also, they're also aggregating SMS or they're doing outreach through SMS, through text messaging. Uh, or it's a TV station that also has a radio broadcast and a, and a major online presence. So it's, it's very rare these days, uh, even with a newspaper, that, that you're working with just one way to to communicate with your community uh, mobile phones are huge huge and offer huge opportunities to reach so many people in developing contexts that couldn't be reached before um, literacy is still a big obstacle so you can only go so far with sms with text messaging and using mobile phones um, in many communities where where literacy is going to limit that uh, the same the same for internet. There are still huge parts of the world where where accessibility and and you know access to the internet is very limited. So radio is still king in in many places in the world. That said, there are places where and in places like India where the print market is actually growing. Um, the Eastern Europe, Central Europe, uh, parts of Asia, television still dominates. But increasingly, we see the internet and mobile phones catching up as a news source or, or people's habits uh, being <clears throat> across multiple platforms. They'll be getting certain types of information through their phone, other types of information on radio. Um, you know, word of mouth in communities is still an, an important factor to keep in mind. So uh, it really does run run the gamut and vary quite widely from place to place. That's interesting to me that there are places where the electronic media and the new media is more pervasive than the old media, which is what I do, print. <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting. And I hadn't, of course, that, that shows my uh, bias, uh, my first world uh, culture, is that I hadn't really even thought about that, that, that uh, literacy would be a big obstacle, uh, that you need to communicate in ways other than the printed word. It, it, it really, it really is, and I think as um, as as literacy efforts continue, this has been in terms of international development. Literacy has always been a priority, other up there with other um, health challenges that is being slowly chipped away at. But it still, it still remains, it still remains a barrier for many uh, many large groups of people. Especially, what we find is is the most marginalized and the most at risk and the most vulnerable are often the ones where that barrier is the greatest. So if you want to reach women uh, in certain communities, if you want to reach um, ethnic minorities, if people who may not have full access to the education system, you really you, you go back to looking at, at radio in many places. Yeah. Uh, well, let's uh, talk to Henri Paul. He's here in the studio. Uh, Henri, Henri, you told me to call you Henry. Henry, Henry Paul. Henry, Henry Paul. Okay. Uh, you work in the Democratic Republic of Congo now. You're originally from Cameroon. You've had extensive experiences, uh, experience in places like Rwanda and Burundi. 
working with media. So to start, how do people get information in what we're calling DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo? How, what's the main way they take in their info? Okay, first of all, uh, thank you, uh, Kevin. Uh, it's mainly through the radio. It is. And if through the radio, because the radio is more, more accessible to, to uh, al uh, almost everybody. Is that AM radio, or is it the equivalent of AM? No, it's FM. FM. FM and everywhere. Do people have individual radios, or do yes. they? They do. They yes, carry like they have. pocket transistor radios. And, yes. And they, do they, if I go to a restaurant or something, they're playing a radio? Yes, you'll find the, in the restaurant, because mostly because uh, not only there's uh, the problem of literacy that uh, Marjorie uh, raised, but also the problem of uh, provision of electricity. They don't have a, even if you have a the TV set, you you are not able to to listen to it all the time because uh, electricity provision is really unreliable. And then also uh, infrastructure in the country, uh, there are not so many roads. You have to from one side to other, and it's a big, it's a huge country, DRC, the very huge country. So to go from one one province to another, you have to use a, for instance, a plane. Yeah, there, are, there are not so, so many good roads. So mainly it's radio. People access information through radio. Well, what type of radio programming do they have? Do they have uh, journalism or is it mostly entertainment? Or No, they have that what we do. That what uh, Internews does there with, through the program that I manage. Uh, we, we train them. We develop their capacity in professional skills for news, for broadcast productions, and for entertainment and for... for Community, community issues, community things that matter for them, like education, health, rural development, agriculture, farming, fisheries, and so on and so forth. Was there much uh, in the way of uh, journalism uh, media uh, there before uh, you started your efforts? Oh yes, yes, there the was. country, yes, yes. Al although it's a, it's a developing country, but uh, it uh, it has a, so some tradition now of. Uh, Broadcast media, and uh, it's one of the countries in Africa with, uh, how can I put it, the most radios in Africa. Uh, the community radios, them only, there are 400 of them in the whole country, and we work with 50 of them in four provinces. Oh, and uh, so you create programming? Uh, we don't create programs. No. We just, uh, like, uh, we, we just uh, develop, their, their, we just build their capacities. For uh, pro professional skills, managerial skills, uh, editorial skills, and so on, and the radio are completely independent. They ju we just uh, support them to do better, the, the best way possible, what they have been doing. Because th those are small community radios in small communities, very, po very poor communities. Uh, those who work in those radios, they are not professional journalists. They are teachers, local teachers. They are local nurses, farmers, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, veteran veterinarians. And so they don't have any skill at all for, uh, to, to begin with. So what we do is really to, 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 to develop their skills to, be, to, be, uh, to, to become the really journalists, reporters, editors-in-chief, program grid directors, technicians, and even for management of their own community radios. That was my question. Is uh, so? Do they have news shows? Do they have yes. pub public affair shows? Or yes. they, you mentioned, for example, veterinarians. Do they have uh, shows about how to maintain your animals? Yes, livestock on livestock breeding. Yes, the first training we do is with editors in chiefs, in editors in chief for the news, to broadcast the news the way they have to be broadcast uh, professionally. That's the first thing we do with them, and then we go on programming. And then we train the technicians for, for, for technical, uh, technical issues for maintenance and for, trans, for trans, uh, good transmission of uh, uh, broadcast programs. Do you find an, uh, a talent pool there, uh, people who are eager to do this sort of work? Yes, yes. There are either fully trained before or with us or even from the ground. Uh, we introduced we through the program that I manage. Re uh, this year launched a program of uh, volunteers, local women, just illiterate women in their communities without any skill, any knowledge of the radio pre previously. After four months, some of those women, women have become good media professionals, good journal journalists, uh, radio journalists, after just four months. So this shows that inspiration, uh, the talent was there. It was dormant. It was not explo exploited. So through the, the opportunity we gave, uh, interviews gave them, they have become very useful in their communities broadcasting programs that are of, higher, of the highest interest for, those, for their communities, their own communities. 
Are there any uh, problems for women in the DRC? Are there any strictures about their behavior? Are they are they allowed to uh, go ahead and assert themselves and and, and make yes. a life, have a professional life? Gen generally speaking, yes, we can say yes, but it depends on the areas. The DRC is a country of uh, I think two hundred tribes. So each tribe has its, its own culture, but generally speaking, generally speaking, women are, do not have uh, access to their own professional career and so on. But uh, it, it's opening, it's opening up. Uh, like for instance, uh, we have uh, in uh, the DRC has 3,000 media, 3,500 media professionals, and all those there are only 25% of women. Although although women are the majority in. Uh, in uh, journalism schools, journalism schools and faculties and so on, women are the majority, but in the media and the media outlet, there are only about 28 to 28% now are women only. What, what sorts of programs uh, specifically did, did you, do they need over there? What, what have they not had? Have they not had straight news? Have they not had health information? Uh, what? Um, what like, what's proven popular over there? Hopefully it's not things like TMZ and gossip and <laughs> celebrities and, and like. not sometimes yes because they are they they are, has a big pool of artists singers so those uh, program entertainment programs are very popular but the main thing are the news the people want the news they need the news when the radio they are radio because it they are radio they are community radios when those radios are not broadcasting for one for one reason or another. For instance, uh, a transmitter, the break, break, breakdown of a transmitter, they will come to the radio to ask people in the radio what's going on, why we don't have our news. Wow. So they're quite hungry for information. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Uh, let's talk mm -hmm. to uh, Erica Feldkamp. She's uh, the... Uh, oh, Erica, you are... What are you? Wait, you're you're uh, vice president of administration in Arcata. What is the Arcata Internews office? What is its role in the organization? Well, the Arcata office is really where Internews was founded over 30 years ago. Was it? And yes, and so um, the organization has kind of grown up here. Um, this is founded by David Hoffman, who still um, lives lives locally. Um, but over the last 15 years or so, we've kind of shifted our headquarters to be Washington, D.C., in the sense that that's our programmatic headquarters, and it's where all the folks like Marjorie and her teams work that really implement and support the direct imp implementation of our programs. So in Arcata, we've remained the business administration headquarters. So we have our, our human resources, our finance, accounting, our grants and contracts administration, and some of our communications and IT are still um, based out of Arcata. And so that um, will remain on our strategy for, for quite a long time to come. And we have, we have a great uh, base of staff here, and that's, that's our core role. Yeah, the former PC Saki. Uh, I have some pictures of that place when it was uh, in the 50s when there were old, uh, big old bulgy cars back in there. I'll bring those over to you. How did you get a job at Internews? Are you from Arcata? I'm not from Arcata. I'm originally from Kentucky. Uh -huh. um, I've lived in Arcata for about 15 years, uh -huh. and um, I went to Humboldt State. And you went did? Through, yes, I did. I went through the Geographic Information Systems program. And um, actually, that's kind of what got me into Internews. Um, I took a job in some database management for Internews over 10 years ago, and uh, they let me use my GIS work to uh, make some maps for them as well, so that was fun. And, um, was this, weren't you guys in the Fireworker building before? Not uh, at that time. We've been in our oh. current location there on 7th Street for about 11 years. Oh, 11, yeah. 11 years. Mm -hmm. I couldn't remember when. You changed yeah. the logo, too, at one point. We did. That happened about uh, two, three years ago. Yeah. Uh, what kind of people work at Internews? What, what sort of skills do they have, and how do you find and recruit them? Well, for the Arcata staff, um, we get a lot of great talent um, here out of out of HSU. Um, we've, I think, just in the last three years, we've probably hired over thirty people who are graduates at some point, whether recently or from a long time ago, from HSU. And of course, we look for folks through uh, the traditional means of putting, you know, ads in the papers and on our website and using. Uh, you know, recruitment tools like idealist.org and those those kinds of things. Um, and we also have a really interesting phenomenon where, where you know, people people have an experience in Arcata. It's a great place. They go to school here, and maybe they move away to get a job um, doing something else. Um, and they always kind of have that longing to come back to Arcata. And um, 
And Internews has really been, I think, one of the organizations that provides that opportunity for people to come back. They go out in the world and they get different experience, even international experience. We have people who have left and gone to the Peace Corps or have taken, um, you know, jobs working in um, roles assisting in these types of programs that Internews even does. And they want to come back to Arcata. So um, it's been really fun to see that. We, get a, we have a lot of people who we bring in from all over the country who are trying to get back to Arcata, and they bring this great experience back with them. You're a global organization, of course, committed to communication, essentially. Uh, is it difficult to work out of Arcata? Or we're way out in the little remote area of the country behind the Redwood Curtain, but uh, does distance matter at all these days? Just, it's, it's time zones that matter, yeah. Ah, that, that's the, that's sure. the challenge. So, um, you know, we have, um, we work very closely with our teams in Arcata, Marjorie and all the, all the folks who, who work for her. Um, we also work um, directly every day um, with um, folks like Henri Paul and his teams in every single country that we have programs in. And that's, you know, that's over 30 countries right now. And so that's a lot of time zones. And so um, our Arcata staff are um, up sometimes very early in the morning. I'm, literally sometimes four o'clock in the morning to to get online and, and support those programs and um, or very late at night just depending on which which time zone uh, you need to work with uh, but they're very passionate about it they enjoy it um, it's a it's a it's a great job this sense of you know feeling part of the bigger world and connected to all these fabulous programs yeah yeah uh, 826-4805 we're with uh, folks from internews tonight we're talking about uh, cultivating media in uh the rest of the world. But what about uh, the U.S.? Does, in, does Internews do anything domestically? Uh, and I'm throwing that out to anyone. Yeah. Marjorie, do, do you have any? Sure. It, you know, it, it hasn't it hasn't been um, a major focus to date. And I think the, the, the primary reason for that is there are a lot of uh, groups similar to ours that have a U.S focus and they, they only focus on the United States. So, uh, you know, it goes back to triangulating the need and the resources and what value we have to add. But we have done a project uh, in the very recent past down in New Orleans. And uh, one of one of the things that we focus on are humanitarian crises. And that can be everything from, you know, post tsunami in Aceh and Indonesia to the work we're doing right now in Guinea and Liberia on Ebola or working with um, uh, displaced people in places and camps and places like Sudan and, and other places where we work. Uh, and we actually saw in New Orleans that there were some significantly underserved communities, especially post-Katrina, that actually weren't necessarily getting their voice out in their community. And, and it was it was a bit of an experiment for us, but we we worked with a public broadcaster down there and put up what we call listening posts in a couple key places in, in some parts of New Orleans that are, that are pretty underserved and um, pretty poor. And they were places, they, we used old New Orleans-style lampposts uh, turned into microphones. And it was a place where people could go up, I think one was outside a barbershop, one was on at the library, front porch, and, and speak their voice and put questions out and the uh the the local radio station was bringing those in and and looking at them and, and answering questions so that's that's sort of one foray we've done into the u.s uh market but in general in general we haven't uh you mentioned ebola i'm curious about the role of uh media in uh incidents like that whether it's a sudden disease uh you know springing up or a natural disaster that sort of thing uh does internews uh, play a role in those sorts of situations we we do and uh much of this dates back almost exactly 10 years ago to when the tsunami hit Indonesia. Uh, Indonesia was a place where we had been working since the late 1990s when the environment there opened up and there was a blossoming of media and a real need to give them support to stand up and get on their feet. And we'd since transitioned out of there uh, and, and the media partners were going strong, but we had worked really closely with all of those radio stations that ran up the Achenese coast uh, that were almost all completely devastated and, and we still had you know friends and colleagues so we went back in and, and brought in what we call suitcase radio stations is sort of a down and dirty way to get up a mast and, and, a, and an antenna and, uh, and, and get on the air and broadcasting 
and what we realized was there was a huge disconnect between the humanitarian community that came in with really important food, shelter, water, medical supplies, and the community they were working with. They, they literally didn't speak the same language, and they figuratively also didn't speak the same language. So we, we found ourselves playing the role of uh, an intermediary that we now call a humanitarian information liaison, where, where we can go back and forth between the local media we know and the humanitarian organizations, which we've also gotten to know their culture and how they work and what they need, and, and help them go beyond just public service announcements and messaging and telling people where to find what and when, but to be able to listen to that community and get an idea of what the community needs and where and when and bridge bridge those two conversations and help with the dialogue. And, and we, we're doing something very similar right now in Africa on, on Ebola. There are lots of messages. In Liberia right now, there are an incredible number of messages that are being pushed out in, in a real effort to, to put everything people can behind slowing down um, the rate of new infections and, and stemming, stemming the crisis there. Uh, but not necessarily done in a way that listens to the community and gets an idea of what the community needs and also why the community might be struggling with some of the health messages that, that don't necessarily fit culturally. Uh, or or now, now as, as hopefully we're moving closer to a recovery phase, we're not there yet, but we're moving closer, you're, you're going to be looking, you're looking right now already at issues of stigma. You have, you have orphans who are not being accepted back into communities you have you have families um who may be stigmatized you have um lack of understanding or faith when someone is declared ebola free so as as these countries move out of the immediate health crisis and into a recovery period there's going to be a lot of work that that we feel strongly local media can do in a way that international organizations pushing out messages can't do on their own. Not to say that those messages are bad or that those messages aren't needed. They're tremendously needed. But if the community media can bridge that and help create a dialogue so that they're as effective as possible, we see that as a really critically important role. And it's one of those added values we can bring in a humanitarian crisis, be it um, man-made or, or natural. I was. I've heard about some of the terrible superstitions and and uh, misapprehensions that they have about Ebola and uh, over there, and I guess we have them here too to some extent. It seems to me that's an incredibly valuable opportunity to go ahead and dispel a lot of that with some straightforward health information. I just wonder how well it's received, or if there's pushback uh, if folks want to cling to their their superstitions. Well, again, we're we're working with existing local radio stations. Uh, we, we were actually working in Guinea before Ebola struck. We were, we were there doing other work. There's other humanitarian crises in that part of Africa, and we were working with local radio stations. And as it turned out, those stations, several of them were in some of the hottest areas in Guinea when, when the Ebola outbreak happened. So we were very quickly able to pivot and start working with them. But it's not our team that's on the front line talking to the communities. It's our team working with trusted voices that are already in place. So we're working with, you know, people like you who are local radio hosts or local editors but may not understand the science or may not know where to get the information in a crisis or uh, where to get trusted information. And we really look at local DJs, local reporters, local editors to work with us to bridge the communication gap and, and bridge, you know, as, as you noted, the, the cultural distrust uh, that's there because we can't come in with the answer to that question, but we can come in and help them work together with the international community to find the answers to those questions. And then because they are a trusted voice, they're the best ones to have that conversation within a community. And, and start to answer some of those questions. And there's there have been journalists in Guinea who, who lost their lives uh, just a couple months ago, pretty early on in the epidemic, along with health workers. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's frontline work in many cases, what they're doing. 
Yeah, uh, I guess it is. Uh, you mentioned these suitcase radio stations. The last time I saw one of those was uh, in Arcata here when Free Arcata Radio, this was about 15 years ago, we had a, our own little underground radio station, and the guy, the guy cobbled together his own little... Now, is this, a, is this something you guys made? Uh, do you have, like, a laboratory or something that makes those? Or <laughs> is, it, uh, is it just something that you put together based on stuff that you find in the area? I, I wish we had a laboratory that could produce <laughs> case radios. That would actually be pretty cool. But uh, unfortunately, it's not, it's not quite that sophisticated. They're, you know, if you're, if you're doing low-power FM and you're reaching a pretty tight, affected community, there's just a shopping list of things you need to make it happen, and you can actually fit it in a few suitcases. Huh. If you get a really, um, you know, the masks are pretty compact. They... they packed down pretty easily. So we call it suitcase radio because we show up with a couple suitcases, and when you open them all up, you can actually get broadcasting. Sure. Um, so it's, it's, it's probably a little less nifty sounding <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> how I describe it, but, but that's what it is. It's not anything that's patented, but any, any, any radio engineer could probably pull together what she or he needs to, to get one of these operational and it's kind of you know it's probably not that far off from what a pirate radio station yeah well the you know <laughs> it didn't work out so well in arcata because the fcc came to town with their vans with antennas and they triangulated in on the the guy and shut him down they went right to his little place where he was over on eye street there i street and uh, found him and said you can't do this anymore so uh, uh, yeah we, we have a radio station we have a pirate station in dc that that just pops up in random places and yeah. keeps moving. i don't think they found them yet but yeah they, they, gotta keep, they keep going keep moving yeah well i <laughs> mean i understand the reason why sometimes they can interfere although these guys were operating on like it's like 40 watt bulb or something worth of power i'm looking actually at a fire that uh Henri, bought yeah. brought here and uh the person showing uh the drc uh radio station and the woman is using the exact same windscreen that i have on my microphone at home so yeah. ah, okay now have you used these uh, sort of suitcase uh get-ups uh in the drc Henry? Uh, not 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 really no we have a well-established community radios small but uh, well-established in community in their own buildings and so on some of these things uh i'm reading that you're uh doing over there seem cutting edge even for the u.s uh, our wonderful enlightened u.s here uh you yeah. put a particular emphasis on training in cross-cutting themes of gender sexual and gender-based violence anti-corruption and human rights yes yes we do that yeah we do that uh we, uh, together with uh, our partner community radios and their reporters, editors-in-chief, we, we put together programming uh, because those are sensitive issues in communities. Those are of highest interest for those communities, so we help them to, uh, to package or to, to, to produce uh, pro uh, broadcast programs on those issues. 8264805 if you have any questions for the folks from Internews how long does it take to stand up uh some sort of local media uh, i imagine it's different in different places of course but if you if you go somewhere that doesn't have a tradition of independent media or journalism uh you know how long can it take and do you see it through to the bitter end uh, till till something's going anyone can answer this question okay. uh, 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 sure oh, Mar oh, Marjorie, go, go ahead, ahead. please uh, no, go ahead first, uh, Marjorie, please. Yeah. Okay. It, it really, it really depends on the place. I mean, you can in in a crisis, you can get up and on the air very, very quickly. Uh, again, it depends on local licensing. We we found that emergency licenses in most of the places we've had to go, even in some even in some places in in Pakistan, where uh, in places like Kashmir, after the earthquake there, where you would think. It would be hard. We, we got emergency licenses pretty quickly to, to get radio stations on the air because it was a place where there wasn't any media. Um, when you say licenses, is there a, 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 like a fed, an FCC or are you talking a license yeah. from the government to just even do it? I mean, there's, there's usually something that's similar to the FCC, um, whether, you know, whether there's two bodies, one that does the licensing and one that gives you, that allocates the frequency, that actually gives you the number on the dial. Um, sometimes those are two different bodies, but there's, there's usually some government body similar to the FCC that will allocate a frequency and manages the spectrum. Um, so that's, that's consistent in, in most places. In, in places like Afghanistan, what was key, because we, we don't want anything we support to completely disappear, um, 
the minute we leave. So in, in a place like Afghanistan, we we convened communities uh, and went community by community. And there was a lot of community work that happened so that, you know, as the station was being built, it wasn't our station. It was their station. And, and the station belonged to the community. In some places, communities donated land or donated resources. And um, these these radio stations in a place like Afghanistan where when we started over a decade ago, there were no radio stations. There, there was no media. It was a complete blank slate um, post-Taliban. Uh, the communities really value these stations. And five of the stations, we work with over 50 there now, that have all been built over the time of our, our work there. Five of them are women-owned and operated. And, uh, you know, we've seen several cases where different stations have come under attack and, and the community really rallies around them. So the key, the key is when we're going in and, and actually building something, which again is the exception rather than the rule, is that it, it belongs to the community from the very start. And, it and it's owned by the community. And so it's rather astounding that women could be doing that in that country where, where women have such a problem. Uh, they seem very re- repressed by the, their native culture. Maybe I don't know what I'm no, talking there's, about. No, there's still, uh, in terms of, of, of women and gender, there's still a long way to go. But uh, but there's also a long way that they have come in, in the past decade. And I think, you know, it's, it's easy to hear nothing but... Um, but bad news from there. But if, if you if you think back to 12 years ago, um, it, there there actually is an astounding difference. Even though right now it's a very troubled place um, and and challenging place. But yeah, five of the stations are owned by women, and they're they're an impressive bunch. They've actually um, come together to jointly produce uh, a radio program um, about women. That, that they share with all 50-plus members of, of the network of stations. So, you know, not, not only do they, do they own their own station, but they've come together to produce, to produce content jointly as well to share with everyone else. Uh, with regard to standing up and institutionalizing this independent media, Henri, did you have comments? Uh, yes, I'll say that what Marjorie said is what we are applying in the DRC. The, the community radio station do not belong to us. We found them already there. We selected the, the best among them, uh, those community radios, and we work with them. So we did not set up. What we do uh, to the, is to help them uh, get their legal status, get uh, the, the, if they didn't have the license, because the, they grow from the out of the, com- uh, the community's uh, will. So we help them to, to, to have the legal status, the, the registration, and so on, and the licenses, and so on. And I want to uh, also add that we have a community radio, partner community radio like that in DRC, which belongs to women only. They put it together to broadcast uh, the issues of concern for them in a remote place in the southern, uh, southern Kivu province, eastern side of the DRC, which is very which is experiencing, uh, experiencing a lot of uh, sexual, uh, sexual-based violence. So the women there came together to build their own radio and then uh, do their, their, their radio work to, to raise the community's awareness on their plight of, on these uh, sexual, sexual, sexually based violence. That must be incredibly empowering for these women to suddenly have a voice and a job and, and be in touch with other people. That must be an incredible feeling to, to yes, assist them. Yes, it is. That. It is. You are right. Uh, not only for the for the women, for the whole community, because yeah. it, it empowers the whole community to fight to be with those women fighting the those kind of evil um, right. behavior. How do you, uh, you know, one of the issues with uh, the U.S. assisting the moderate, quote-unquote, rebels in Syria is, you know, we're going to give them arms or whatever. How do we ensure that they don't end up with people on extreme sides? How do you do that? I mean, if you go in and set up some infrastructure or, say, set up a radio station, how does uh, Internews ensure that it doesn't get taken over by some, you know, political or religious zealot culture and hijacked, as it were? Well, we, we, we only work with local media that shares our values of journalistic integrity and accurate and balanced news and information. We also we select our partners that have already shown a commitment to producing news, not just commercial programming or, or entertainment. Uh, and, and again, it's you know having, having our teams on the ground be, be local and as locally rooted as possible. And if if they were to see something, they listen to the content and they read the content and, and they see 
they see the dialogue that's happening. So if if something were to go awry, they could put up a warning early on. But it's it really comes down to the selection of partners. Uh, and and we have seen media. There there have been there have been situations where the media has been used as a tool for hate speech uh, in places that the Rwandan genocide is probably um, the most well-known example, which is why we think it is so important to work with media, and especially local media. We saw, uh, we, we've been working in Kenya for over a decade and actually started there working on health and HIV programs because there was, the media was doing a really great job at perpetuating stigma, but not a great job at covering what was actually happening and and debunking myths and encouraging people to get tested and to know their status and and to to diffuse stigma. Um, We were there when the post-election violence happened in Kenya and all of these media that we worked with, which in that case were mostly national, um, came to us and said, there's there's violence breaking out. There were cases um, of media, mostly local media, community media that was in local language, not in English or Swahili, that uh, was seen as perpetuating hate speech. And, and they came to us and said, what, what can we do? So we all sat down together and we convened them and we started a dialogue with editors and journalists talking about what was happening. Where is the hate speech coming from? What can we do? How can you be better prepared? And, and what we found in the end that much of the problem was actually local radio hosts were getting calls that were hateful and, and weren't necessarily equipped to handle them. So we, we shifted our focus. We stayed focused on, on health and HIV, but also added a whole layer of working with local language radio and community radio um, in the Rift Valley and other parts of Kenya where the violence was the most extreme to help local DJs, um, talk show hosts, journalists understand hate speech and be able to manage it better. So if if they got a call in and they, they were already well prepared, they knew what they had to do to diffuse a potentially hostile situation. So that's just sort of one example of how we deal with it. But because the hate speech is out there, we actually think what we do is is even more important because if we can help people, people be prepared not to go down that road and to understand what it is and also be ready to mitigate it when it comes across their airwaves in the forms of, of calls or, um, you know, guests in studio so there, there are lots of ways to mitigate it, but it, it comes back to selecting the right partners to work with and finding those trusted, reliable, editorially strong voices. Sure. Uh, just as a, a little caution to readers, apparently the electricity grid is going to go down here at Humboldt State here momentarily. We're not sure what's going to happen. We apparently have backup power, although... You just never know. <laughs> so uh, if we go off That happens air, to us all the time, everywhere we work. So. Well, it's like the especially authentic DRC. experience. <laughs> well, you were going to say? Uh, especially in DRC. That we, <laughs> it is one of the problems uh, those community radios face there, the breakdown in, in the power, of, uh, power provision. And they, almost all of them work with uh, generators. Uh, now we are equipping them with uh, solar, uh, solar electricity kit, kits. Yeah. So, uh, uh, what other organizations does uh, Internews work with? You just, just don't just walk in there and try and do everything yourself. I know that you work with local people. Are there any other uh, non-government organizations or governmental organizations that uh, you frequently coordinate with? Yes, apart from uh, CBOs, uh, community-based organizations that set up those community radios, we work with two the national NGOs there in the DRC. Which one? One of the first one is uh, journalists in danger. It, uh, its mission is to protect journalists when they are uh, dragged to court, they are in prison, they are uh, harassed, and so on in the, the course of their professional duties. So it's one of our partners there. And then we have another second one not the least, is a Congolese Women in the Media Association. It's one of, the, one of, our, biggest, uh, one of the, our biggest partners there in the DRC, and they, work, they are mandated to promote women as credible voices, as credible media managers, and as credible media professionals. So we have been working with them for the last two years. 
And uh, do you work with uh, academics, too? I mean, uh, I don't know what the educational system is, for example, in the DRC, but uh, do you try and tap into that as well? We uh, Yes, we, they are associated with uh, programming. Uh, just today I was reading a terms of reference of one of our, our colleagues who has to make a presentation at uh, the Catholic University in Kinshasa. To, to promote, to, to let, let them know what we are doing, what interviews are doing in the country for the media, at the, the, the legislative for legislative reforms and regulatory regulations regarding the media, the media and on uh, institutional capacity development for those media. So we are not so closely, but uh, we uh, we have links. We have links with academia. The Congo is a, a very lar- physically large country i think you said yes. 2.3 million square, square kilometers yeah yes yeah i imagine so there are urban centers do you do you do you sort of uh, stay in urban centers or do you try and disperse out to the most remote places remote places mainly we have a few community radios in urban centers but most of them are in remote places for uh, grassroots com- in ga- grassroots communities and uh, how is internews funded where from where does it get its funding uh, yeah, sure. I can I can answer that. And actually, um, I, I'd also like to, to 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 just say one more thing about a comment Henri Paul made, and that was uh, a, about working with organizations such as um, Journalists in Danger in DRC. Journalism globally is an incredibly dangerous profession. So, mm-hmm. in addition to working with journalists on their their editorial skills and and ethics and their sustainability we have increasingly over the years have uh, added added the ability to support them on their physical and digital security because most of the places we work being a journalist is also a dangerous career whether you're covering corruption or organized crime uh, or or just finding yourself in the middle of a conflict and and covering a conflict or an insecure um, situation it's it's unfortunately become part of of doing business and i'm i'm a former former broadcast journalist former tv journalist um and and have experience with that myself so i i understand the need but it is it's something that we may not talk about as much as other things but it's it's really important for for these people to be able to continue doing their jobs as safely as possible um, in terms of our funding, we're an independent nonprofit organization, and as such, as most independent nonprofits, we depend primarily on grants and donations. Uh, our donors include individuals, foundations, private sector organizations, governments, multilateral institutions, and a whole bunch of other nonprofits like ourselves. So we, you know, we we work with a real mix. We do get. Uh, the majority of our funding is from different parts of the U.S. government, but it's also mixed in uh, with support from other governments, such as the Canadian government, the Australian government, uh, and a whole mix of foundations from MacArthur to Rockefeller to the Knight Foundation and a lot of, a lot of smaller foundations. Organizations like Google as well um, are, are supporters, and we collaborate with, um, with all of the big, social media that are out there as well from you know facebook is is huge in many parts of the world youtube twitter all of these are platforms that people are using so we we stay in contact with with those organizations too yeah i'm looking on the list of your uh, donors on your from your website and there's uh, usaid and uh, a lot of un uh, different organizations and world health organization and a lot of private donors and uh, a lot of benevolent foundations and so forth uh, how do you retain your independence or and i would imagine that the perception of independence is absolutely crucial in doing this sort of work Yes, and uh, you know, as as a journalist organization, we think about this all the time. And and all funders and governments, um, private or public, have have an agenda, and they fund that agenda. And we really carefully review project by project. And if if our goals match the goals of um, of a certain funder or or project, 
we'll move forward, and if not, we'll we'll say no. But we really work hard to define our goals, define our policies and organizational vision, and and separate from the policy of any particular donor. And we have our own internal strategy sessions and definition of what we want to do, and then we look at where it aligns. Um, so that's that's how we deal with it. We, you know, we're we're very much peers and colleagues when we go in to work with people. Uh, and I, I think that helps a lot in terms of perception, because many of us are, are former journalists ourselves, and you know we have long history in the places where we're working. So we're working with peers. I mean, for me personally, having been in an international um, journalist and in the international press corps, in in many places from Somalia to, to Chechnya and Bosnia. The ability to go back now that I'm sort of on this second second phase of my career and and working with internews and and work with the local journalists that I'd always come in and gotten to know but then had to leave. Um, and now I can work with them for years and and it's just tremendously satisfying and it's those it's those strong peer to peer relationships as well that that helps us be successful. Uh, is uh, does Internews uh, use volunteers or interns or, or, is, or is everyone compensated and I, I guess I'm thinking like a, a lot of people have a compulsion to do good in the world and, and um, I'm just wondering if it could be like the Peace Corps if someone can volunteer to work with you guys well we have we, we do have interns um, we have some interns in DC we work with several uh, universities that have schools of communication or journalism and in in many cases they've given us fellows that that are actually funded by the school and we have had a few situations where fellows have gone to work out of our bangkok office for a semester or out of kiev in ukraine uh and and they they come fully funded from from their institution to do master's level research we've had some uh some other people you know come up to us and say can we do research with you so it, it has happened. I don't know, Erica, if, if you want to talk about volunteer opportunities in Arcata. Yeah, is there anything someone could do? They, they do come up from time to time, um, but it is our business administration side, so it's not the exciting journalism work that um, Marjorie can offer out of the D.C. office, but we definitely have opportunities, and we um, encourage folks to, um, to let us know if they're interested in coming and doing something with is us. There, great. Is there anything else like Internews in the world in some other country or in this country? Are there any other organizations kind of modeled the same way? To have the same mission we have we have several several peers in this in this work uh, which is great so we're actually we're a community of organizations some have more focused areas of specialty some focus more on the security or more on the content uh, or some go in deeper on investigative reporting but we've come together as a community of um, I think it's probably over 100 organizations that include local organizations and regional organizations and international ones like ourselves and the Global Forum for Media Development so that we have a place to gather, to share experience and best practices and learn from each other. But they're really, they're, they're, they, we do have colleagues out there, which is great. Um, they're not all based in the U.S. They're really all over the world. So we're, we're not alone, which is, which is a good thing. And we, we work together wherever we can. Okay, we're running low in time. I think Henri has a point. Yes, just about that. We work in DRC. We work with the Fondation Hirondelle. It's a it's a media development organization based in Switzerland. They are one of our international partners. And I, Kevin, if I could make one more, Please. I I I love it when uh, when Erica was talking about being an HSU grad and then you know being able to go to Internews. We actually were talking about. Um, HSU in the office not too long ago and realized we have three HSU grads in the D.C. We had three at that time in the D.C. office working here who had both found their paths to the organization in different ways but had all come out of Humboldt State. And I don't know if they all got to know about us through through Arcata Connections, but it's, it's also kind of cool that we have grads that turn up in D.C. Just like Erica said, we have some people who are from the from the community and go out into the world into Peace Corps and then come back and get a job in Arcata. Um, we also have some who make their way to the East Coast. Well, that's great. I guess you can act globally and locally at the same time, especially in Arcata. I just wanted to, uh, we've been talking to uh, folks from Internews, Marjorie Roos, Senior Vice President of Programs, Erica Feldkamp, Vice President of Administration for Arcata, and Henri Paul. He's uh, Chief of Party in 
the DRC, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I just saw one thing on your website. Someone said, when individuals can speak their minds, when technology is adapted to serve the needs of local communities, we see a change. Governments and institutions are more accountable, and individuals live with dignity. That's universal. That's why we do journalism here in the USA, too. I'd like to thank our guests uh, from Internews for being on Thursday Night Talk tonight. I learned a lot about what you do, and it's just great. And uh, maybe we need something like that here domestically, too, sometimes. I'd like to thank our producer, Carell, uh, as always, for doing such a great job. And uh, also congratulations again to Dr. Michael Fratkin for getting his resolution care thing going. Thanks in part, I think, to a little publicity from TNT here Thursday Night Talk. I'm Kevin Hoover, editor-at-large of the Mad River Union. Thanks for joining us tonight. See you next week. Thank you.